0: Longer tours of duty in Afghanistan, but what does this really mean for soldiers and their families? Wigs, sunglasses and a huge wad of cash, the American spy caught in Moscow. What makes a good foreign secretary?
1: You have to be rooted in British politics, rooted in what the interests of Britain are, but interested in engaging with those people overseas.
0: And we head stateside for the Warrior Games. British soldiers are going to be doing longer tours of duty in Afghanistan. Earlier this week, the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond announced some tours of duties will be extended from six months to nine months. Major General Patrick Sanders is the Assistant Chief of Defence Staff Operations. I spoke to him earlier this week and asked him what his message was to the troops and families involved.
2: Well, I think the first thing to point out is that uh, that this only affects a minority of people who will be deploying on Herrick 19 and Herrick 20. Um, but for those people who are going to be asked to serve up to eight months in the case of Herrick 19 and up to nine uh, in Herrick 20, although clearly we're still aiming to have everyone back by uh, by the end of 2014 when combat operations end, uh, I'd simply um, thank them for the extra commitment and sacrifice that they're making, particularly in the case of the families. Um, uh, and secondly, uh, to, to reassure them, I know that we they will do, um, they will approach this with the same professionalism and dedication that that people on previous tours have done, um, that people are doing who are currently serving nine and twelve month tours and that we would have expected them to do during a six month tour.
0: You recently commanded 20th Armoured Brigade in theatre. How would this have changed things for your soldiers had the decision come in then?
2: Well, this is not the first time that people have served nine and twelve month tours and as you know, you know, we, we join the army to serve on operations and we join without approaching this in a will only go if it's for six months. So uh, we all as soldiers know that uh, that we could be asked to serve for longer than six months on, on a tour. Um, worth mentioning I think that uh, that the Grenadier Guards served for uh, an eight or nine month tour um, without complaint and with extraordinary dedication and sacrifice um, and if I'd been asked or in many cases if, if we'd been asked during Herrick 15 to serve for, for an extra nine months I have no doubt that a lot of people would have put their hand up to uh, to a volunteer.
0: And how has this decision been taken? Has it been based on military advice or political pressure to save money?
2: No, it's nothing to do with politics. This is entirely military advice. So the Chief of the Joint Operations recommended uh, very clearly to Chiefs and to the Chief of the Defence Staff um, that we needed to, um, to, re- to to examine how we approach the last um, two, three tours of this campaign. And the campaign is changing and it's right that we look at how we do that. It suits um, it makes, it's done on the basis of military necessity and clear military advice for, the, uh, for, for what's best for the campaign and for theatre. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that, uh, that there are benefits to the army and defence because it allows the army to, to begin to recock for contingency uh, after 2015. So, no, this is not a political uh, issue.
0: Major General Patrick Sanders, Assistant Chief of Defence Staff Operations, speaking to me earlier this week. Well, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with me as usual. Hello, Christopher. We've known this might happen for some time. Is it a good thing?
3: Yeah, it is a very good thing. And it's also, you've got to remember, this is a new phase of operations. Um, and it does allow, as he said, he calls it recocking, uh, the idea that the army's got to get itself... Restructured for future operations, and the reason for this is this: if you bought let's say nine thousand guys into Afghanistan you probably you're actually tying up probably twenty twenty two twenty three thousand because you 've got people who are just coming out and redeploying you 've got people who are training to go, and so just by having nine thousand there and of course nine thousand isn 't just turn up and then all disappear at the same time so that's very important interestingly well uh, for the whole operation the decade of the operation there was one failure i think and that is the commanders should have stayed there for much longer than six months and you would have had that sort of continuity um the other thing we've got to remember is that in 2014 pull out yes withdrawal yes But other guys are going to be there. Training groups are going to be there. And what he didn't talk about and what nobody's talking about is what is the force protection going to be? Because you can't rely entirely upon the uh, Afghan army to do do the job for you.
0: Indeed. Stay with us, Christopher. Now, what would leaving the European Union mean for British defence? Many questions remain over the proposed referendum on whether Britain should remain part of the EU. A few days ago, Defence Secretary Philip Hammond said he thinks as things stand, Britain should opt out. But what would that mean for european defense treaties and cooperation rob watson is the bbc's political correspondent hello rob Um, where's philip hammond coming from on this
4: Well, I think that his position is not so much on the defence side, but I think the more general position of the Eurosceptic, and I guess he was asked a straight question, maybe David Cameron wasn't that pleased that he answered it, uh, on the long lines of, well, as things stand, as Britain's current relationship is with the European Union, taking in more the the political side of things, the economic side of things, uh, he would vote, uh, he wouldn't be desperate if we were out.
0: Christopher, just take us through the way Britain works with its European neighbours on defence at the moment and how being out of Europe would change those relationships.
3: Well, the first thing to remember is that if you went to a NATO meeting, as there is at the beginning of June, for example, um, and then at the end of the week you went to a European uh, EU meeting, you would find a lot of the same guys there. And so you have political sort of dimensions to belonging to Two quite separate operations with two separate purposes, but you think politi- politically the same way. There are other small Does that
0: mean th- that you think that it wouldn't make a great difference in that sense?
3: I think it would make an enormous difference uh, if the United Kingdom was uh, uh, adopted out militarily. Uh, from the from the EU. I mean, we're not talking about European defence necessarily, but do you remember, uh, uh, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger said years ago. You know, if I if I want to call somebody in Europe of a big, big, big deal, uh, who do I call? Um, being part of the EU, uh, being an active part of the EU, means that people start getting a bit sniffy with each other when you've got to sort of trying to get some deal in the NATO or the United Nations contest uh, context, and that becomes enormously important that you that you think the same way you have. Have the same anxieties, whether they're, they're economic or political or, or whatever, and and then finally there is the strict commercial. I mean, the the commercial deals that you can probably still do if you're outside of the EU, but when it comes to defence manufacturing, disp- defence spending, and more importantly def- joint defence sales, because the more you sell, let's say, to a Middle East country, the more the cheaper your unit prices. All those things, it's not just one, uh, uh, w- one single argument, are we better off militarily,
4: in or out.
0: Rob Watson, what do you think? Do you think Britain would be damaged on defence if it were not part of the European Union?
4: Well, I think Christopher's laid it out nicely there, suggesting that, you know, in many ways it's much more of a, a political issue than a straightforward military one, because... If you look at the, the European Defence Agency, which is the the, the heart of European Union defence policy, it, it doesn't really involve an awful lot of money. And I think as its outgoing director said a couple of years ago, the European Union is sort of at that point where, like with the monetary union an economic union and political union, it has to decide whether you know, you really want to make a go of having a European defence policy and therefore European defence forces to back it up or, or just let the whole thing shrivel. And frankly, it, it's all a bit up in the air. So we're not hugely committed in any way to this, uh, the European defence agency. But I think what Christopher is highlighting is you, you just have to shake your whole head up and think, well, well, you know, this isn't about an individual little committee. It's how would things look if we were a member of NATO and not the European Union. Now, it, it's not for me to say whether it would be a, a good or a bad thing, but what I am saying is, it's one that really makes you scratch your head. I mean, it would be a, a very different world.
0: Christopher, how might the relationship with America change for Britain?
4: Well, you know, this
3: the the, the, the idea that uh, that Britain should pull out of the EU. Obviously, I exercised uh, uh, last week, was it earlier this week, the uh, uh, American president, who said, basically, I think you, you ought to go and sort this out. Don't forget that um, I reckon that you could be a member of uh, the EU and not be too much fussed about who was a member of NATO. Ireland is a perfect example of that. Ireland's not a member of NATO. But you can't round the other way because there are too many political trade-offs. And also, you have this final thing. Um, You know, Europe is a very, very powerful uh, organisation. And the Americans like powerful organisations. And as, as I said earlier, Kissinger always wanted somebody he could ring. And if we pulled out, it wouldn't be David Cameron or whoever succeeds him.
0: Briefly, Rob, um, how much damage do you think the uncertainty caused by the prospect of this referendum is doing to Britain standing with its allies?
4: Well, I think they've got plenty of problems of their own, let's face it. They've they've got the whole Eurozone crisis. And I suspect they find it rather hard to to read what is going on in the UK. And don't forget as well that exactly where the European Union is going on defence and its relationship with NATO is all up in the air. So the way I I describe it is it's just one more bit of uncertainty in a very uncertain picture.
0: All right, Rob Watson, BBC's political correspondent, thank you for your time today sit rep with kate Chibre. still to come tales from the foreign office we talk to tony blair's former chief of staff jonathan Pohl, about what makes a great foreign secretary then we're off to colorado springs for the warrior games
5: and now entering the square the british armed forces
0: the FBS sit rep does the arrest of an American in Moscow earlier this week mean the Cold War is still going on? According to Russia's security service, Ryan Fogel is an American spy and was trying to recruit a Russian source. Russian state television showed the moment that Mr. Fogel was jumped by agents and then showed off his supposed spy kit, which included wigs, sunglasses, cash, a compass, and an incriminating letter. Former Kremlin adviser Alexander Nekrasov joins us now. Hello, Ale- Alexander. Hello. Uh, the Russians have described Mr Fogel's activities as crude and clumsy. Is it for real?
6: It does look like a Tintin adventure, doesn't it? Because uh, it's, it's very unusual to see a spy walking around uh, Moscow having all that so-called equipment on him, a compass. Even and a
0: guide on how to be a spy, I read one <laughs> newspaper
6: report. Yes, well, that's very odd, isn't it? And the letter itself, which says, Dear friend, you know, we'll pay you this if you share <laughs> your knowledge with us. It, it all looks very bizarre, honestly. And um, another thing which is very strange, that the FSB, the former KGB, they don't really announce... Uh, when they catch a spy. They don't really go on television or radio at once. They, they sort of investigate first and so on. It does look very odd. So what do you odd.
0: think happened?
6: Well, uh, it's, 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 you know, there are many scenarios. Already there are rumours, for example, that it was a setup and that... Um, some hardliners in the Kremlin and in the government, they want to spoil relations with America. So uh, this operation was conducted in such a bizarre way and so on. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's so difficult to understand the logic behind all of this because uh, why, why would anybody recruit, go and recruit somebody in a park, you know, with loads of cash and with a compass and with a map of Moscow and so on, wearing a wig, of all things and why would he be a diplomat of all people because diplomats are usually you know marked people in every embassy they would tell you that uh, they're being watched and uh, it's very bizarre I, I'm, I'm honestly at a loss what to say here at the moment
0: Christopher um, help us out this isn't the first incident is it in Russia this year
3: this is the third one this year mm-hmm. there was one in in, in uh, was it uh, Alexander was it in January they picked up somebody I, 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 I think right. then
6: <laughs> yes there was something in you, January, know, yes. you know <laughs>
3: Can I do just two points? Um, I'm almost old enough to have lived through quite a lot of these uh, uh, things, whether they've been stings, whether somebody's been set up or not. And I always reckon that you don't go on the first newspaper reports. You start, uh, the story starts leaking out maybe two, three weeks later. I mean, keep your eye on, on, a, on a website like Stirring Trouble Internationally. And then you'll probably get the true story of actually what happened in about two or three weeks' time. But I give you one thought um, uh, Ryan Fogel, you know, when he was nicked very snappy dresser, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, very, very snappy dresser. Pop, pop,
0: pop in the wig, of course. Well, I know a few
3: bars in, in Soho where he might have been well well remembered.
0: Uh, Ale- Alexander, uh, how much spying, though, seriously is still going on? I mean, difficult well, to, well, I suppose you to know,
6: really it's, know, but... It's, it's a cliche now, basically, you know, that spying goes on even when the countries uh, are friends and so on and after the Cold War it continued. Yes, it did continue, uh, and it will continue forever, probably, but you know what, what is also important? I mean, Christopher is right. We need to wait and see because all those first reports, they're usually very confusing. But usually when they catch agents anywhere, by the way, not only in Russia, it's usually a failure. Because, you see, you don't really arrest agents if you know they're agents and what they're doing. You monitor them. You, you, you watch them and see whom they're meeting, what they're doing. And then you feed them uh, false information. That's usually the case. So every time I, I hear that you know, there's a great uh, success of some intelligence service, this time the FSB, th- there is a failure somewhere there because they, they, they had to move in and they did it just for publicity probably, for PR. And in this, in this respect, we'll probably know...
0: So what, what leverage would Russia be trying to get though out of doing this?
6: Well. You know, first of all, any intelligence service is trying to prove that they are working hard, come on, in any country. So occasionally they do something spectacular, in inverted commas, to prove that, uh, you know, the budget is going and they need more money and so on and so on. And, uh, but, but the fact is, they, yes, the spying will continue and, and it will continue in different uh, for shapes and forms because I suspect the main idea now, now the, the story behind this one is that it has to do with the Boston bombing, supposedly. And that they wanted to find out more things about those brothers and more things about whether they had any connection to anyone and so on, which they could have done easily by asking the FSB, basically. But uh, uh, generally speaking, I think that, uh, you know, this spying is now going to, to be different because I don't think diplomats... We're going to do this because they're always under uh, monitor you know, being monitored all the time. I think that will be more of a people like posing as businessmen or tourists or whatever, whatever. And I think that that's where it's shifting. And. Um, it will continue, obviously, because industrial espionage is becoming huge, and I think China is now leading the way in this, and, uh, uh, well, Russia is probably following British. it behind. British.
3: Come on, come on, uh, uh, Alexander, it's not as it was in your day, was it? Listen, I tell you, the Boston thing is very important, because the, because the Russians did actually warn off the Americans, mm-hmm. especially the FBI, and so this is, being, this, is, this is part of it. There is still the serious part of it, still a lot of espionage going on. Oh, for goodness sake, I mean, the, we were talking about the EU earlier along. Uh, the British spy on the French to find out what they might be saying at the next EU meeting, so l- let's let's not okay. do the business down that quickly. This
0: conversation will continue off, Mike, later. Alexander Nekresov, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. What does it take to be a great Foreign Secretary? Should they spend their time travelling the world and making friends with their foreign counterparts, or is their time better spent in Whitehall? Should they speak foreign languages and how well do they need to get on with the Prime Minister? Jonathan Pohl, who was Tony Blair's Chief of Staff, has spoken to five former Foreign Secretaries about all aspects of the job for pro- the program, his program on Radio 4. Earlier, I asked him why he decided to examine this subject.
1: Well, I was a diplomat for 16 years, and then I went to work for Tony Blair when he became leader of the Labour Party, and I became chief of staff in Number 10. So I kind of saw the relationship between Number 10 and the Foreign Office from both sides. I saw the way it was as a diplomat, and then the way it was uh, from the Prime Minister's perspective. And there's an interesting thing that's happening to the job of Foreign Secretary. It's becoming more and more reduced in its room for manoeuvre. The scope for action is becoming less and less, partly as Britain's role becomes lesser, but also as uh, the Prime Minister has a bigger role in foreign policy. There are now more and more summits that Prime Ministers go to. There are more and more uh, foreign policy staff attached to Prime Ministers and Presidents around the world, and they're always talking to each other, and that reduces the scope for the Foreign Secretary.
0: Yeah, and you interviewed five of the nine living foreign secretaries from Lord Carrington to David Miliband. What differences did you notice in the way they approached the job?
1: Uh, They all had a very, very different sort of approach. It was interesting. The ones who were lawyers, like Jack Straw or Geoffrey Howe, were very much approaching it as lawyers. They read their brief and they got their case. Someone like Lord Carrington, who is very patrician and actually a rather wonderful foreign secretary, uh, had this great habit of pretending he didn't know anything about the subject going into a meeting, but in fact knowing all about it and allowing the other side to sort of hang themselves enough rope and then jump in and show that he was on top of the brief. So they all have a different sort of approach. Robin Cook was described by his private secretary in the programme as the uh, school SWAT. He would sit on the aeroplane going to a summit and he would be reading all the briefs, getting all the points, making little notes and and very, very prepared. But interestingly, Robin was also very good at making friends uh, with his opposite numbers. And one of the key things of a foreign secretary nowadays is you have to uh, have real close relationships with your... Uh, opposite numbers. You need to do them favours because you want them to do favours for you later on and particularly with your European colleagues.
0: This is what um, you allude to in the programme, isn't it? Is that for- foreign secretaries needing soft power. How do they actually develop that soft power?
1: Well, as our hard power has gone down as a nation, you can no longer send in the gunboats as we did in the 19th century. You need to be able to persuade people to build coalitions. Uh, So you have – that's what soft power really means. It's gone from gunboats to networking. And foreign secretaries need to be able to go into those European meetings knowing they can count on three or four people with them. And if they're going to have an impact in, I don't know, Nigeria or in Korea or in China, they need to be able to act with as many of the foreign ministers from Europe as possible. And now, of course, we have a European foreign minister and a European foreign service. And the first holders are Brit. It's uh, Cathy Ashton. So there's now yet another constraint on foreign secretaries, and that is that part of their job is being done by someone in Brussels.
0: And did you notice any difference in the style of the former foreign secretaries, depending on the party, for example, uh, Robin Cook, who thought he might be able to learn French in one afternoon, whereas Douglas Hurd was a linguist? Well, the interesting thing was
1: almost none of them were linguists. Uh, Douglas was the only one who spoke languages. He has Italian, uh, French and Mandarin Chinese, although he says that's a bit rusty. Um, David Owen said one of his great regrets was that he didn't speak French and he wished he had learned French. So there is um, a lack of language skills in Britain in general, and that does reflect itself in the Secretaries of State. But nowadays, English is increasingly the lingua franca in terms of meetings, uh, international meetings. So, in fact, the Foreign Secretary can get quite well by quite well just speaking English.
0: Okay. what about the relationships between the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary? How would you judge them and how have they changed over the years?
1: Yes, that's an interesting question. The, um, uh, my father was in the Air Force, and so I, I, I used to hear from him about the Ministry of Defence and how how things were. He said he remembered uh, working very closely with Dennis Healy and uh, after the election being slightly shocked to go to the bus stop outside the Ministry of Defence and find Dennis Healy standing there too, waiting for a bus. Now he'd lost his uh, dr- chauffeur-driven car. Um, Ministry of Defence is still enormously powerful, particularly because we've been engaged in so many... Uh, hot wars around the world recently and so the Ministry of Defence really has a a very important role. I think the creation of the National Security Council which this government has done and which we considered when we were in government uh, doing has helped because that has made uh, the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence come together along with the Prime Minister and other relevant ministers and have these discussions properly. I think that's a, a good thing.
0: Finally, what do you think makes a great Foreign Secretary?
1: Well, everyone in the in the program everyone i interviewed said the first criteria has to be being interested in foreign policy and not all recent uh, foreign ministers have been interested in foreign policy you have to keep that combination of being willing to win people over, to persuade people, to be engaged with foreigners, but not get disconnected from British politics. You have to be rooted in British politics, rooted in what the interests of Britain are, but interested in engaging with those people overseas. And I think if you have that skill, particularly in the modern world, where the skill of networking will be so important to our foreign ministers, the ability to persuade people to build coalitions, that has become the the, the key ability. Lord Salisbury, who was both Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary at the end of the 20th century, really thought we should have no alliances and should spend as little time with foreigners as possible that has completely changed now you have to be able to get on with them
0: Jonathan, good to talk to you maybe next time you could look at uh, what makes a good Chief of Defence Staff
1: I'd love to do that, thank jo- you very much Jonathan,
0: thanks for your time and you can listen to Jonathan Pohl's programme The Art of the Foreign Minister on the BBC iPlayer uh, Christopher, who was your favourite Foreign Secretary and why?
3: Oh, three of them really Lord Curzon, right at the beginning of the century um, of the 20th century Ernest Bevin Labour, after the Second World War, it was he who pushed through and got formation of NATO. Uh, very underrated man. Lord Carrington, I suppose, um, he fixed Rhodesia, what was Rhodesia. He brought Mugabe to power, uh, but very laid back. Uh, I mean, Jonathan talks about him being patrician. And uh, he also got an MC. He sat himself on Nijmegen Bridge in his tank and encouraged the Germans to shoot at him during he the thought. war mm-hmm. um, so he could divert attention uh, from, from the, tro- the troops are trying to get across. And I said, to him, I said to him, Peter, you might have got yourself killed. He said, we wouldn't have been having lunch, would we? He said, it's a jolly good lunch as well, isn't it? This
0: is BFBS Cigarette. The Warrior Games has been taking place all this week in Colorado in America. The competition is for injured, ill or wounded servicemen and women who may still be serving or have left the military. 30 British athletes travelled to the States to take part in a team organised by Help for Heroes. BFBS reporter Tim Cooper spent the week with them.
5: And now, entering the square, the British Armed Forces. The Warrior Games got off to a flying start, being officially opened by His Royal Highness Prince Harry. That ensured the world's media was in attendance, helping raise the profile of disability sport. The Helper Heroes team was back for the second time at the Games, but crucially, they were able to score medals this time in the seven sports being contested. Their opponents, the various branches of the U.S. military, who seem pleased to have the Brits along. Specialist Quentin Picconi of the U.S. Army. You can learn so many different things, you know. They might, someone from, you know, over there, where you guys are from, have a different way of doing something, bring it over here and show us how to do it, which is really cool and, you know, vice versa. And that's the whole point of the games, really. It's about inspiring each other, developing confidence both physically and mentally in an effort to recover from some truly dreadful injuries or illnesses. Captain Dave Henson passes the baton to teammate Corey Mapp on the athletics track. Henson of the Royal Engineers, lost both legs when he stepped on an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan's Helmand province in 2010. Three years on, thanks to skillful rehabilitation work, he's once again able to take part in competitive sport.
2: Every soldier's used to being part of a team and used to being competitive and used to doing exercise all the time and help the heroes uh, and the MOD through the Back back programme and opportunities such as this, such as the Warrior Games we are out here, really provides the guys an opportunity to get back into that competitive spirit amongst people who we were in a very similar situation, who've suffered a you know,
5: major trauma in their lives. In the Archery Hall, Marine Liam Brentley is one of the British competitors. He was shot in the head in Afghanistan in 2010. It's been a long road to recovery. Before joining the Marines, Liam played rugby league with the Sheffield Eagles, so having the chance to play sport again has really helped.
1: It's a big uh, boost in my confidence, I think, meeting other people in similar situations and myself. It's a massive step forward. So I meant to come on it last year, but I had setbacks with operations. So it's good to see that I've moved forward. Just
5: two of the 30 on the Help for Heroes team using this sporting spectacle as a mechanism to help with their recovery. Bryn Parry is co-founder of Help for Heroes.
2: One one of the things we find is when people are injured, um, it becomes a very solitary experience, except when you're at Headley Court. And these bring them back together, and suddenly the humour's there, the competitive edge, uh, you know, they're they're back in the game, really. Prince Harry
5: has called for the Warrior Games to be held in the UK. Certainly from being on the ground with the team, it's clear to me that they really have helped these wounded warriors with their recovery, from, in some cases, injuries so severe, we couldn't even begin to imagine what it would be like to live with them. Tim Cooper for SITREB in Colorado Springs.
0: Now, just before we uh, leave you this week, time to talk about uh, two very different stories, Christopher, about drones.
3: Yeah, uh, the Americans have actually done the first test of the uh, X-ray 47 Bravo. And this is a drone, but the important thing about the drone... It's a drone, big one as well, isn't it's it? It's a, huge. Yeah, it is. It is. 62 feet wide, 42 feet long. It's a sort of stingray-shaped, and they've flown it off the back of an aircraft carrier. That's the important thing. They haven't landed on, uh, worked out how to land it on yet, but they will.
0: And this could well be... Uh... And what
3: this does, of course, it's, it adds to force projection. Indeed. And it also stops all the political problems of where drones fly from. And the Royal Navy is looking at this and saying, perhaps when we get our new aircraft carriers, we ought to have this technology and the ability to project even further than we do by having drones going off aircraft carriers. Remarkable things. uh, You know, uh, at 40,000 feet operational uh, area, can fly for, uh, say, six hours most important development
0: and uh, let's talk about drones in pakistan because some important things been said by the new prime minister there
3: yeah, prime minister sharif is 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 probably one of the big chances for the future of pakistan uh, much experience was 14 years ago uh prime minister got a lot of political things to sort out but he is saying you know we've got to rethink this whole idea of fighting terrorism and it may be that you don't do the drone stuff into pakistan which is a big political difficulty, and you can 't hold your political uh, forces there when you think about it, in the past ten years, and most of it in the past three years, because that 's when drones have become operational properly, three thousand five hundred and thirty five as of yesterday, people have been killed by American drones operating on the afghan Pakistan border. Sharif, who is the big answer for us, says don't do that. I can't deliver the politics that you need to guarantee the future of Afghanistan if you carry on doing that.
0: Christopher, very briefly, five seconds, next week, what do we look out for?
3: I think we look out for the fallout uh, from uh, General Khayyami. It's again, he's the Chief of Staff of Pakistan. Uh, NATO he's been talking to. Let's see what the recession uh, comes out of that because of Afghanistan.
0: Okay, time to go. Thanks for listening. We'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now rap
5: on BFBS on digital radio and satellite TV
4: in